Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, would you join me in 1 John? 1 John. If you're not quite sure how to find it, go all the way to the back of your Bible. You'll find the book of Revelation. And if you'll start moving toward the front of your Bible in just a couple of books, you're going to hit three letters that John wrote uh, to a collective of churches in the first century. And we're going to be in the first one, chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. We've been in the middle of a series called Seven, and we're at a point in that series that I think is really appropriate for Mother's Day. God just sort of works those things out sometimes, uh, where we've just been covering the basic commands of Jesus. Uh, our discovery is that no matter how long you've walked with Jesus, no matter how sophisticated you think your faith may be, there, there's a time that comes uh, on occasion, needs to happen rather regularly, in fact, where we just go back to the roots of our faith, the very basics, because that's the foundation upon which we grow and we become more like Christ and we, we become more effective in the ministries that he has called us to and whatever professions we find ourselves in. And so we've talked about a lot of different basic commands. We started with the command to repent. What does it mean to turn from your sins, to turn from your, where you're walking in one direction and you intentionally turn around and start walking in the other direction, not just initially in, as, as a gift of God, that kindness that the gospel says leads us to repentance, but also as a daily practice of what Paul called putting to death the deeds of the flesh. What's that look like in Pastor Joel's life after decades of following Jesus? Because no matter how far advanced I may think I am in my faith, that's still a basic requirement that I get up every day and I repent. We talked about baptism and the idea that uh, that symbolizes the change that Christ has made in our lives and how crucially important that is within the life of the church and in the life of the individual that we submit to Jesus' command to be baptized. We've talked about prayer, and you can expect to hear more about prayer in the coming days as we enter into a summer series on spiritual warfare. Prayer is going to pray, play, obviously, a very large part in that. What does it look like to pray as Jesus commanded us to pray, to pray powerfully and effectively? And then last week, we talked about what does it mean to make disciples? This is the last command that Jesus gave to us before he left the planet. It's going to be the first thing that he inspects when he returns. And so it's pretty important we get that one right. And so we spent a good deal of time on Unpacking Matthew 28. What does it mean to make disciples? What are all the, the various sides of that that the church needs to be aware of and obedient to? This morning, we look at what seems to be a very simple command, what is, I think, appropriate for a Mother's Day occasion, but it's a little harder sometimes than we like to admit. It is when Jesus tells us to love one another. How many of you believe that Jesus wants us to love one another? How many of you would keep your hands up when you go, sometimes that is not as easy as it sounds, right? And some things fit really well on a coffee cup, but they don't really go well in life. They're, they're very difficult kinds of things to do. But, but the, the point is, we can't be effective at any of the other things that Jesus has called us to, whether it's baptism, whether it's making disciples, prayer, repentance. None of those things are as effective as they should be if we're not doing it together. Jesus does not call us as followers to do anything alone. 
One of the disadvantages with all the blessings and, and enormous uh, benefits that come with living in our country and in our culture, but one of, the, one of the disadvantages of that is this overemphasis on individualism, this idea that everything's private and everything's personal that has some way in, in somehow way kept, crept into the body of Christ, and it leads us to believe that even Christianity can be an individual thing. And then we look at the New Testament that's written primarily to groups of Christians, to churches, and not necessarily to individuals, and we try to apply those things individually, and sometimes we get into a little bit of trouble when we uh, start to do those sorts of things, because we fail to realize that the New Testament, even Jesus himself, doesn't speak to individuals nearly so much as he speaks to churches groups of the gathered congregation. And even here, when we have hundreds of people that'll be gathered between two services on a Mother's Day Sunday, the New Testament would not speak to hundreds of people. The New Testament would speak to one body. And because we live in the culture we live in, sometimes we miss that. And as a result of that, we miss this call of what it really means to be one body and to truly love one another. Now, the good news is we can find this. You and I have the capacity to obey this command of Jesus. We can find that kind of unity in ourselves. And I'll tell you, when a church finds that level of unity in a world full of Fergusons and Gazas and Baltimores, there is simply very little unity, lots of animosity and distrust and polarization in our world. Would you not agree? Nothing vindicates the power and the truth of the gospel of Jesus than when his people demonstrate a different level of behavior, a higher level of conversation, a different kind of unity. And the good news is we can have it. The worst news is we, it doesn't come easily. Even in the body of Christ, and sometimes especially in the body of Christ, it just doesn't always come easily. And that's because, and this may surprise some of you, but if you get this many people together in a couple of services on Sunday morning, some people are going to have different opinions than other people. I've been here almost four years now. I have heard your opinions and they're different. It is really, really different. It's, it's amazing to me. And yet somehow we gather together and Jesus says, I don't just want you to tolerate each other. I want you to push through not necessarily become something different than you are, but to push through some of that and learn not just to be tolerant, but to love. Love each other. It's hard, but it's possible. And we know that because this is the story that holds us together. The gospel is a story of God building a family. And he's still building his family. And so probably the most succinct place that we find this command and that we find God's will on this, it is in, is in the passage that we uh, read just at the outset of this message from Matthew chapter 22. I want you to take a look at Jesus' words once again. When he was asked a very direct question, which is the greatest commandment? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, the great and the first commandment. And a second is like it. In other words, very closely tied to your love for God is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, there's no vertical harmony with the one who created you without horizontal harmony with those he created. Amen? 
We've got to learn to be good neighbors. That starts within our church fellowship, but then it extends to there. I actually got a really good question uh, over the break. Someone said, is it, is it a hierarchy? Like you love God and then you love the church and then you, then you love your neighbor. And I said, well, I, I would, if I had to, if I had to describe it, I wouldn't describe it as a hierarchy. What I would say is, obviously you love God first. That's where it all starts. But that love for God overflows into our love for each other. And if that happens within us as a unified body, guess what happens then? As a unified body, that love overflows. And guess who it good touches? Our neighbor. Our neighbors see the tangible love of Christ in our love for each other. Other. You know, one of the things I'm very grateful for being here at Covenant is the diversity that we have. And I'm not just talking about ethnic diversity, although I'm thankful that we have some measure of that as well. And God willing, we'll have more of it as we move forward together. We have, we have some opinion diversity. We have some ideological diversity. You know, we got an election coming up next year and there's going to be at least two candidates that are going to make it. And some of you are going to vote for one and some of you are going to vote for the other. We're going to cancel each other out. I happen to think that's not a bad thing. I really do. Because in a world that is completely polarized, it's not that you don't stand for truth, but it is that you understand that God's truth is higher than any political ideology could ever describe. And so how do we come together and how do we have a higher level of conversation and demonstrate not a Republican or a Democratic platform, but a kingdom one? Since the Republican and the Democratic one rep are all based on a kingdom that's temporary, and if it doesn't end in this lifetime, it's certainly going to end when Jesus comes back. And we pledge our allegiance to an eternal kingdom in a way that brings us together and then overflows into the lives of our neighbors so that this temporary kingdom is made better. Now, the question is, how do you get there? And why is it important? Well, when the body of Christ finds its common identity in this way, it's something that the Bible calls, actually there's a couple of different words for it. One is community, and the other one is something called fellowship. How many of you have heard the word fellowship before? And how many of you are triggered, not necessarily negatively, maybe positively, when you hear the word fellowship? You got a picture in your mind, don't you, already? And for most of us that spent a lot of time in church as kids and growing up, fellowship involves a casserole dish, doesn't it? Yeah. We like to eat here. If you're a guest with us, we like to eat at Covenant. We don't think that's fellowship, but we think it makes fellowship a whole lot sweeter, doesn't it? It really does, yep. And so you, you, for some of you, immediately this picture came up like the one up top here. And for others of you, it, it's that picture of that sort of kumbaya let's hold hands, let's have a really good feeling together, let's always feel good. Those can be the benefits of fellowship, but those are not fellowship. Fellowship actually looks, if you look at the, the way Scripture describes and employs the, the word in the Greek language, fellowship looks a lot less like a potluck dinner and a lot more like a family intervention. And that's tough, isn't it? That requires that we push through issues and into each other in a way that makes all of us better. That's what it means. And community occurs when we love the family of God with the love of God. When we love the family of God with the love of God. This is what 1 John chapter 4, verse 21 says. The person who loves God must love other believers. 
All right. Another way you could translate that is in this, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know what that's called? That's called being the church. Because church is not a building. Church is not an organization. Church is not a weekend experience. Church is family. It's family to everybody who calls on the name of Jesus. And I got news for some of you. You will never be complete without it. You just can't do it. You cannot be a Lone Ranger Christian. You need Christian community. And God intends for you to have that community through the fellowship that the New Testament describes as being attained within the life of the church. What's interesting to me is even the secular media gets this. Not many years ago in the Dallas Morning News, reporter Peter Martin was talking about the way urbanization has changed in some of the major cities around Texas, whether it was the Dallas-Fort Worth area, the, the Houston area, or, or other similar areas around the state. And, and, and what has happened is because of urban sprawl, you have no more city centers where everyone gathers. And in the middle of that article, I read something very fascinating uh, by someone not necessarily purporting to be a follower of Jesus. When he speaks of the way that our urban societies have, have begun to develop or even devolve, he says they have all but destroyed the ability to maintain a community. People no longer have a reason to be outside where they can talk with their neighbors. Months can go by when neighbors never see each other. How many of you experienced that in your HOA? The only thing you have in common with your neighbors is your HOA. Six-foot privacy fences also block the simplest efforts of communication. Later in the article, he says this, where can one go in these places to connect with other people? That's the question, isn't it? Where do you do that? You know what he said? All of our privacy concerns over the last generation all of our security systems and voicemail systems and other technology that has been designed to throw up a wall between us and other people has created a lot of, of, of unfamiliarity, particularly with people who aren't like us, don't think like us. That drives polarization in any society. We don't know each other. We had a public forum here at the church as we do a couple times a year back about a month ago, and I had a panel of various people. We had immigration attorneys. We had uh, Shepherd University faculty people. We had evangelical leaders and pastors uh, on, that, on that stage. And at the last part of that interaction, I just wanted to know, what is your greatest fear? What is your greatest hope? And we had a political science professor from Shepherd who is an immigrant from Armenia. He was the last one to speak. And he said, my greatest hope is for a gigantic solar flare. Now, I thought I knew where he was going, but I wasn't sure. So I said, why don't you unpack that for us? And he said, sure. He said, a gigantic solar flare would fry almost everything electronic on the planet, and then we would no longer have the privilege or the disadvantage of trying to understand our neighbors through a screen. We'd actually have to talk to each other. How's that for an idea? Right? I, and when I look at my neighbor who's different from me, when I look at my neighbor that has a different opinion than me, I'm no longer filtering him through my favorite media personality or my favorite outlet or anything else. I've actually got to talk to the person. I've got to hear it from the horse's mouth. How much? And he said, he said that's my greatest hope because I think that would actually force us into actually understanding each other rather than going to our respective corners and always assuming the worst about each other. I think he's right. 
I think you see that in articles like this one in the Dallas Morning News. But more importantly, I think we see in the Bible this need for unity in the body of Christ that spills over and creates that kind of dynamic and culture outside our walls. You and I were made for community. And so were those who are yet to know Christ. And John tells us why. Let me show you three reasons on this Mother's Day. First of all, community makes us more like God. Look at verse 19 where John says, very simply, we love because he first loved us. Do you see that inextricable connection? We love the kind of love that we're supposed to have for each other. That love is rooted in a higher love. It's the love that God has for us. So there's a couple things I need to see out of that. Number one is that the love I show to others to obey the command of Jesus is not inherent in me. I don't have it. I have to get it from someone else. The second thing that I need to see is that I love because he loved me. It started with him. But I also need to see, what does it mean to love? You know, in our English language, we use this word for a lot of stuff, don't we? I love my wife. I love my children. I love my job. I love my truck. I love my shotguns. I just use the word love five different ways in the same breath. And so in that kind of environment, it's difficult sometimes to understand not only that this comes from somewhere else, but what is the thing that I have to get from God in order to, in order to exhibit to you and you to me so that that spills over into our community and into the world so that we can actually love our neighbors? What is this thing? Thankfully, the Greek language into which our New Testament was originally written is much more specific about what it means. It's much more precise. And what it reveals is that God doesn't love me like I love my shotguns. Aren't you thankful for that? God doesn't love me the way I love my Toyota pickup truck. And we should be so thankful for that. In fact, God doesn't even love me like I love my wife. As powerful as that love is. God's love for me and for you, and if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, that's the first thing you need to hear. There is no love that could ever be extended to you the way God loves you. And he demonstrated that for us in the death and the resurrection of his only son. God has demonstrated a more powerful love than we could ever fathom. And here's the magic part of that, guys. He has given you and me the capacity to demonstrate that love to each other and allow that love to overflow into our communities and into the world for his greater glory and for the good of all of human flourishing. That's our calling as followers of Jesus because he first loved us. That was his posture toward me. Sometimes I look at violence in the world and I look at uh, people who believe differently than me in the world. And my temptation is to say, well, they deserve this or they deserve that. And the fact of the matter is, from a civil society standpoint, they might. I'm not even suggesting otherwise. But what I am suggesting is that high and mighty sort of approach where I'm looking at another person like they deserve to go to hell and I don't means I've lost something of what it means to say that I love because he first loved me. He started it. By looking down in this cesspool of sinful humanity 
and seeing prior to the foundation of the world this sinner who was deserving of his wrath and judgment, who not only, I don't, I don't deserve to be on the stage. I don't deserve to have the life that I have. I deserve the wrath of God, but I do not suffer it because he first loved me. And if we can get that into our heads and our hearts and have it come out in our hands, what could we do in demonstrating our unity to each other and allowing that to spill over into the world? That's the kind of community that allows people to see God when they see the unity of the body in the church. In fact, John tells us that that love is so strong that if you actually belong to God, it's unavoidable. He says this in, in verse 8. Take a look. The one, anyone, who does not love, and remember the definition of love, anyone who does not do that does not know God because God is love. You remember that Bible verse? Yeah, when you grew up. If you grew up in church, that's probably one of the first Bible verses you ever memorized. Three really simple words. First John 4 eight. God is love. The only problem with that is it's half of a verse. The first half of it is something we need to pay attention to. God is love, therefore, anyone who does not love, and we would say, in the way that love is described by the biblical text here, you must love as God loves or you do not know God. If the horizontal relationships in your life are not right, if they're jacked up, and they're jacked up because of you, okay? I feel a need to put a little excursus in for this one. We've been, we've been going through some training here at Covenant on abuse prevention, starting with children, but going from there to, to, to our sisters in Christ and others to make sure that Covenant remains a safe environment for everyone here, and that if anyone is suffering from harassment or abuse, that they can come, that they can immediately get uh, the equipping and the resourcing that they need, that abusers can be confronted. So if you've been the victim of abuse, bona fide abuse, you do not owe your abuser the right to make up with that abuser. Okay. That's not what we're talking about. But what I am saying is this, if the horizontal relationships in your life are jacked up and you realize that the reason for it is because you are selfish and self-centered and not showing the love of God to that other person, the reason very well might be because you don't know God. That's a strong warning that we hear from the word of the Lord here. The reason we love is because he loves. If we don't love, it's because we don't know his love. 31, uh, 13 years ago, Brown University published some research about the, the relationship between the social behavior in teenagers and social connection. In particular, they were looking at violent outbursts, things like school shootings and movie theater shootings and, and things of that nature. I was on the, the hill in Washington just a few weeks ago with a young lady named Heidi Cortez. She's in her 30s now and she's a mom and, and she was there because she was advocating for safer schools and she was doing that because she doesn't want what happened to her to happen to her now five-year-old child because 20 years ago, she was at Columbine High School hiding under a desk in a library while gunmen roamed through that, those hallways, completely no empathy whatsoever for human life, absolute evil. Now that kind of thing, when it happens, it should be punished. It should be punished severely. 
So the point is not that people shouldn't be held responsible for their actions, but what this Brown University study was saying was we need to understand what causes that. And in most cases, you know what it was? It was a lack of connection. Look at these words as a quote from that study. It is the potency of family connection. See, I don't think it is a coincidence at all that a rise in the kind of violence that we observe in our culture today completely correlates with the breakup of the nuclear family, in particular, the absence of fathers who will not take responsibility for their children. It's that family connection. This isn't evangelical Christian. This isn't a bunch of fighting fundies. This is Brown University. It's the potency of family connection that guards adolescents from emotional harm and gives them succor from a world that's rough, a niche where they may express their most vulnerable and warm feelings in the open without fear of ridicule. Now look at this next very profound statement. By protecting them from the harm of disconnection, we are in turn protected from being harmed by violence as their desperate last attempt at connection. What is it that we're doing to make sure that everybody feels like there's a place for them? That everybody understands that they are welcome. That they're not always going to be agreed with, but they can share their feelings and their vulnerabilities. That there's a safe spot here among the body of Christ and believers who see first and foremost a person created in the image of God, the object of the redemption of Christ. When we see those kinds of, when we see those people in that way, can save a lot of heartache in the world. An awful lot of heartache. And what that research and what Scripture tells us about human nature and the necessity for connection is really simple. It says that when you see events like what transpired years ago in Ferguson, Missouri, or Baltimore, Maryland, or just a few months ago in Christ Church, New Zealand, you should be appalled at that. You should be prepared to speak against that, but you should not be surprised by that. Don't be surprised by that. Because sin and separation can always be found together. You ever notice how that happens? Somebody falls into a sinful lifestyle. Somebody makes a bad choice. Somebody decides they're going to keep making that bad choice. You don't see them in the body of Christ for a while. Nobody's run them off. Nobody's told them to get lost. We all wish they'd come back, but they won't. One preacher put it this way, the closer you are to God and his word, the further you will be from your sin, and the closer you are to your sin, the further you will be from God and his word. And I would simply add, the closer you are to your sin, the further you will be from God, his word, and his people. Deviancy and disconnectedness are kissing cousins. That's what we learn from this. But community, coming together, you know what John has promised us here? Is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ can provide something these people and you and me that we won't be able to find anywhere else because when we act in the way that God acts toward us, when we love as God loves, people see God. Community makes us more like God. Secondly, community helps us learn to get along. Take a look at verse 21. John goes on and he says, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, if you're too baptized into, into cultural norms, there should be a little bit of cognitive dissonance on your part when you read that passage. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a commandment to love? Whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't help who you love and who you don't love. 
You can't help your emotions. Love is love. The heart wants what the heart wants. You see how we, you see what we've done? We've translated love into nothing more than an emotive reaction to something else. But we've already learned, have we not, that that's not how the Bible defines love, is it? How many of you remember the, the first, I said the first girl, but if you're a lady, it's the first guy. But for me, it was just, you know, the first person you ever fell in love with. You remember that person? You, I, it's okay if your spouse is there. They should be secure enough. Hold your hand up. You remember? Right? I do. I was 14 years old. So you know it was serious. Right? 14 years old. I was enamored. And she broke up with me. I have no idea why to this day. I am such a catch. But, but she, she did. She broke it off. And it was like, it was just like, there were days I, I couldn't sleep, but, but yet I wanted to stay in bed all the time. I spent a lot of time crying. My dad and I were working on a project together, and he was like, son, what's the, come on, like, get out of bed. You got, I need your help. Get this finished. I mean, I was, I was a mess for days. And now I'm 47 years old. I don't even remember her name or what she looked like. I remember the experience. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's not just the ADHD. I don't remember. So whatever that was, bad pizza, I don't know. That wasn't love. It wasn't. Strong and motive. Listen, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Any good, solid marriage should include a measure of that. But if that's how you define love, you are on a one-way trip to divorce court. Because I can tell you, 25 years that we've been married this coming July, Mrs. Rainey has not always liked me. Ladies, can you testify that? It's okay, your husband's sitting there. He should be secure enough. That's right, I haven't always liked you. Look at your spouse and just go ahead. I haven't always liked you. Tell them that right now. I haven't always liked you. This is healthy, all right? But you know what I know about my wife? And same is true with me. I haven't always liked her. We have always loved each other because love is not an emotive reaction to something attractive or something that makes me feel good. Love is an act of the will. Love is a decision. Love's a decision. It says, I can't stand you right now, but I am staying with you. That is precisely the kind of love that's described in the New Testament. It's the kind of love that emanates from a God who looked on a cesspool full of people like you and me and decided to save us anyway. There wasn't anything attractive about us. I, ugh, somehow we've changed the gospel and Jesus died for you because of how wonderful you are. You are not impressive. And neither am I. God died for the glory of God. God sent Jesus to die for your sins for the glory of God and because of his love for you, not because you made him feel good or gave him the warm fuzzies, but because he decided to act, an act of the will of the divine to redeem you. That is the gospel. And it's grounded in that measure of love. And it's that measure of love that we learn how to have when we come together as a faith family. And you'll notice, I say it helps us learn to get along. Community doesn't by itself produce harmony or unity, but it teaches harmony and unity. You get the difference? All right? The heart of community 
is to learn to live together without killing each other. And one of the reasons we are so disconnected, I think, is because we don't invest emotionally in relationships with other believers because we're afraid we're going to get hurt. Or maybe because we have been hurt. So I'm going to say something incredibly unpopular. For those of you who are visiting, I don't do that often. But I'm going to, I don't know why you are laughing, but I, I'm going to say something incredibly unpopular here, okay? It, if you invest emotionally in another human being, you are going to get hurt. My wife has sinned against me. I have sinned against her. We have hurt each other. We have sought forgiveness and repentance when that happened. And it might, it, it, it could be something really serious or it could be something so insignificant as why didn't you do the dishes? Well, I thought you were going to do it. And then five minutes later, there's an explosion. And don't look at me like you're all innocent. You know you do this too. Right, And then we bring that into the body of Christ and we act surprised when it's not all kumbaya, my Lord. We're not all getting along. Sometimes we rub each other the wrong way. That's because community was given to us not as an attainment of unity, but to teach us how to build it. You're never going to get there if you're never part of a church. You're never going to get there. It teaches us this. You're going to get hurt. People are imperfect and temperamental. Community and fellowship doesn't look nearly so much like a potluck dinner as it does like a family intervention. And in case you think I'm the only person that ever came up with this, reading the scripture that we're looking at this morning, let me show you the words of C.S. Lewis, who said the following, there is pain that exists in all significant relationships. If the relationship is worth anything, it involves pain. It can't be all happy-go-lucky. I mean, we just, I don't know if we watch too many Disney movies. I don't know what it is, but, but that's not reality. The reality is God gave us each other so that we can learn unity, and we have the capacity to get it from, what does the text say? From Him. We have a commandment from Him, but we also have a love that we've already been told two verses earlier emanates from Him. So we don't just have the command, we have the capacity. We have the capacity. But you've got to be part of community to get there. Otherwise, you're like a football player who says, yeah, I got my helmet and pads, but I don't belong to any team. You're like a drummer who goes, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a musician, but I'm not a part of any particular band. Or you're like a guy who says, yeah, I like that other guy, but I can't stand his wife. And, and what's, what it results in is a lot of floating around. We, we have a culture that is filled with people who go to church everywhere and belong to church nowhere. And that is deadly to your soul. It's just deadly. If you want to grow in relationship to God, an essential part of that process is learning to get along with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And occasionally, wherever you go, there's going to be disagreements, there's going to be arguments. Uh, I have the honor of, be, of being part of our, our local fire department here, and my primary role is a chaplain. And uh, I witnessed, uh, we'll just say a disagreement between a couple of guys 
several months back, and it got a little ugly. It wasn't a huge deal, but it's just, you know, stuff happens. I didn't think anything about it. One of the other firefighters comes up to me uh, a couple of weeks later, and he says, I just want to apologize. And I said, for what? He gets, and he referred back to this incident, and he said, I just, Pastor, I just hate it that you had to see that. And I said, well, I, I really appreciate the sentiment behind that, bro, because bro, I, I, I tell you, as a pastor, I've never seen conflict ever, like all our... And then, of course, he responded just like you guys did. And I said, dude, do you not think this goes on in the church? And then I asked him a question. I said, do you know the difference between a church fight and a bar fight? A bar fight lasts 15 minutes. A church fight can last up to 15 years. I mean, it's ugly, a bar fight. I'm going to tell you, there's blood on the floor and broken beer bottles and glass and somebody's missing teeth. But after 15 minutes, what are they doing? Man, I'm so sorry. I love you so much. And in a church, it just gets ugly. And we think we're still obeying Jesus because we don't cuss in the middle of it. It's because we haven't leveraged the power of community that's given to us here. You're going to disagree. We're going to rub each other the wrong way. But in that process, we can learn about ourselves. We can learn about the other and we can truly love each other. And I got to tell you, the sense of community that comes from that, I really don't have the time or the space this morning to share some personal stories that Amy and I have that we could share with you about church commitment and, and the rewards that come with it. I can just tell you it's worth the journey. It is totally worth the journey. And by the way, if you're a guest with us this morning, I, we're actually in a pretty sweet season right now. What I'm doing is called preventative maintenance preaching. Um, it's, it's not, as far as I know, at least, there's not a whole lot of ugly or anything like that going on. We're just, it, we're actually in a really sweet season, and I'm, and I'm grateful for it. But, you know, stick around. We're a church. We're different. We're the people of God. We've, we've got to learn how to work this out together. Community helps us learn to do that. It also makes us more like God and gives the people, when we do this right outside our walls, a picture of who God is. Here's one final thing community does. It helps prepare us for eternity. Look at verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Now that's pretty bold, isn't it? Think about that for a minute. I love God, but at the same time you say, I hate. It doesn't matter how you finish that sentence. Okay? This is why you cannot follow Jesus and wear a white hood. Boy, it got quiet in here. Am I right? Yeah, you can't do that. You're going to have to pick a team. You can pick Satan's team and wear the white hood if you want. Or you can, it amazes me. I've actually, I've had a few good people. I love everybody here, but I've, I've had people go, but Pastor Race really is an issue any, any, anymore in this country. We got a KKK cluster not five minutes from this building. We've got minority brothers and sisters right in front of me and in the last service, scared to go to Sharpsburg by themselves. Don't lecture me about how we don't have a race problem. And it is not the church's responsibility to ignore that. We confront it. We call it out. We look living, breathing hatred in the face and we say of it what Jesus said of the religious leaders, you are of your father, the devil. And then in love, we call them to repentance. 
Don't believe me? Let's read these words again. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Can't do it. Can't have it both ways. Why is that? Let's keep reading. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. See, we can't see God. Scripture tells us that. God is spirit. So anybody can say, I love God. There's no way to prove or disprove that, is there? And we're living in a day now where if somebody says that, we're never supposed to question that. Don't ever judge that. Don't ever... We can pretty much figure out on every other level of conversation whether or not you mean what you say. Why should we not be able to discern that with regard to when you say you love God? We should be able to discern that, shouldn't we? And the proof is in the pudding, and John says it very carefully here. If you do not express, if there's not a a work in progress in your soul that is leading you to the place where you are learning how to love as God loves, you're refusing to do that with people created in his image that you can see, there's no way you can legitimately make a claim that you love the God that none of us can see. You got to pick a team. Now, where does that apply in the local church? Where does that apply? Well, John mentions this two other times in his letter. Look at these words. Chapter 3, verse 10. Anyone who does not love other Christians, or you could translate it this way, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Four verses later, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Also, pretty blunt. This is how we know. This is how we know. Church is where you learn how to do that. And if we practice that kind of community in a world full of Syrias and Palestines and Gazas and Fergusons and Baltimores, we will reveal the power of the truth of the gospel like nothing else because people are looking for that now. They're looking for that. What does it mean to be a community that loves everybody? Everybody. I see a human being created in God's image and the object of the redemption of Christ. What does it look like to love them? And that's going to be important not just for our impact on the world, not even just for our community with each other. Brothers and sisters, that's good for your soul. Because in 27 years of ministry, I've been at a lot of bedsides. I've seen a lot of people die, like literally take their last breath and go out of this world and into the next one. It's included a couple of pastors. I have never once had anybody look at me or anybody else around their bed and say, go bring me that gold watch that I earned from my company that I retired from, spent 30 years on. Nobody's ever said in that moment, go bring me the copy of my 401k earnings. No pastor has ever looked up from his deathbed and said to the people around him, bring me the attendance sheets and the giving records. In that moment, everybody says, bring me the people that I love. Bring me the people that love me. So let me just ask you a real simple question. Who's going to be around that bedside for you? 
And the answer should at least include the people in this room, the people in the last service, the people you're in small group with, the people that your teens are in ministry with on Wednesdays, the people that your kids are rubbing elbows with right now, down in Covenant Kids. That's, that's what my prayer is for us, that we would learn not just how to repent, baptize, make disciples, pray, but we'd learn how to do it together as one body. But you've got to learn what it means to live in covenant with each other. There's nothing, nothing more important than that. We all need to learn how to live better and how to love better. Some of you, you may have grown up in, home, in a home where there just wasn't a lot of love. And you don't know what this looks like. You don't know what it feels like. You don't know how to do it. Church is where you learn how to love like God. If you don't know, maybe even while this, the, the Word of God from 1 John is being instilled into your soul these last few moments, you've been thinking to yourself, you know what, the pastor's right. I don't know how to love. I don't. I know how to have sex. I know how to be romantic. I know how to be charming. I, know how, I don't know how to love. I don't know how to love in that way. The, way, the place to learn that is in the community of faith, as the community of faith learns that together. God designed us, covenant, as an instrument by which we can all learn and love together. Let's commit to do that as part of this family. Let us do as Jesus commands. Let us love one another. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for a love that cannot be measured, a love that is unconditional, and a love that will never end, that was given to us. Father, thank you for the capacity that you give us to allow that to spill over into our love for each other and the unity that you prayed for in John 17. Father, that they may be one just as you and I are one, I and you and you and me. Father, the same level of unity that exists within the members of the Godhead would be demonstrated and manifest here among your people and that the power of your love would irresistibly permeate this tri-state area and the world because of our obedience to this very simple command, let us love one another. I make this prayer in the name of the one who first loved us. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.